earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Today we're at Session 22 in our series, Oh, That First Means That. In these sessions, we've taken a close look at a slew of popular Bible passages we believed meant one thing, but are quickly discovering they actually mean something much different. Well, today's session is Someone's Knocking at the Door, a title I borrowed from Paul McCartney in Wings' song, Let Him In. That begins, Someone's Knocking at the Door, Somebody's Ringing the Bell, Do Me a Favor, Open the Door and Let Him In. The podcasts of these sessions are posted at faithtalk1360.com. Just search for Local Program Podcasts. And I need to reinforce a statement I've been making. The Bible really does have a story to tell us. In fact, it's crying out, screaming out to tell us its story. But sadly, we preachers, teachers, and pastors, along with average Christians, tend to make, force, or manipulate the Bible to tell our story, whether knowingly or unknowingly, I say, shame on us. And I need to drive home another point I've been making. The author and inspirer of our Judeo-Christian scriptures, our Bible, if you will, is the Holy Spirit, as Second Peter 1, 20 and 21 tell us. So, friends, let me ask you, isn't the Holy Spirit deserving of our respect as we read God's Word? Doesn't God's word deserve greater respect rather than just cavalierly spouting off what we think a verse means? Today's title, Someone's Knocking at the Door, actually opens the door to a well-known scripture verse, Revelation 3.20. You know it well, right? I bet you can quote it from memory. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Friends, the first thing we should observe is that this verse is part and parcel of a segment addressed to the church in Laodicea, which goes from verse 14 to verse 22. And the teaching aimed at Laodicea is one of seven teachings aimed at seven first century churches elaborated on in chapters 2 and 3. As chapter 1 unfolds, John's given a vision by the risen, ascended, and reigning king, Jesus. John testifies in chapter 1, verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven church communities, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So, friends, the broader context is 2.1 to 3.22, which covered Jesus' personal assessment of all seven churches. 
And for five of the seven, Jesus calls them out on areas where they're faltering or sinning. Ephesus lost their first love, and if they didn't repent, their lampstand would be removed. Pergamum allowed false teachings and immorality to flourish in their congregation. Thyatira tolerated a false prophetess who led them into immorality, plus they were eating food sacrificed to false gods. Sardis's deeds were falling short. Some had soiled their spiritual clothes and had to wake up. And Laodicea, our church under scrutiny today, was lukewarm. So Jesus called them wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And the remaining two of the seven churches don't get off the hook. Smyrna is told to not fear the soon coming suffering and persecution and to not worry about being hurt by the second death. Philadelphia is told that despite their little strength, hold on to what they have so no one takes their crown. Interestingly, to five of the seven, Jesus says, I know your deeds, Laodicea included. And to two of them, he says, I know your afflictions and I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. But to all seven, he declares, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to all seven, he says, there's a reward waiting for those who are victorious or overcomers. Sadly, friends, to the Laodiceans, Jesus adds to their condition. You're not cold or hot. I wish you were either one or the other, but you're lukewarm and I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Well, let's zero in on Laodicea with our detective's cap and our pocket magnifying glass. And today, let's add first century sandals. Let's look with first century eyes, hear with first century ears, think with first century minds. Let's rely on first century clues to help us understand and interpret Revelation 3.20. Friends, I'd like to recommend you read Revelation chapters 2 and 3 in one sitting and notice the relationship between what Jesus accuses these churches of and what his admonition or recommendation becomes. In other words, what he tells them they must do. For Laodicea, in 3.18 and 19, Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve for your eyes so you can see. Be earnest and repent. Jesus' judgment is totally appropriate for these Laodiceans. After all, Laodicea was the economic and judicial center of a metropolitan region that included Colossae and Hierapolis. Its citizens were proud of their self-sufficiency. In A.D. 60, a severe earthquake hit, yet they refused aid from Rome and rebuilt their city themselves, making it beautiful. They were wealthy and proud of their status and accomplishments. Hierapolis was known for its hot springs and their healing qualities. Colossae was famous for its cold, refreshing springs. But Laodicea got the worst of both worlds. As the water was channeled to them, it became smelly and lukewarm, tasting terrible. The Christians in Laodicea equally thought of themselves as prosperous, self-sufficient, self-reliant, dependent on no one. Laodicea was also a proud exporter of black wool cloth and garments, prized materials, and one source of their wealth. 
another being their famous eye clinic and their well-known eye ointment. Friends, see where this is going? For the carnal, wealthy-minded Laodicean Christians, Jesus counsels them to buy gold from him. In other words, acquire treasures from heaven so they'd have the spiritual riches through faith in Christ. And for their black wool wealth that blackened their hearts, Jesus counsels them to change to white garments, which represent spiritual purity. Like Sardis, the one who is victorious or overcomes will be clothed in white garments. As John closes out Revelation 22.14 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so they will have the right to the tree of life. Back in 611, the martyrs were given a white robe. Friends, the truth is that white white exterior wealthy clothes won't withstand Jesus' purging fire, but spiritual wealth will with eternal value. Jesus' symbolism here of purchasing white garments likely counteracts the black wool cloth the Laodiceans prized so highly, which actually represented their proud and carnal spiritual condition. And for the spiritually blind Laodiceans, Jesus counsels them to apply his spiritual ointment to their eyes. Only his eye salve would help them see their sins and repent. The contrast between material riches and spiritual riches among the Laodiceans is intentionally stark for Jesus. This church was affluent in worldly things, so much so they were blind to their own spiritual poverty and insensitive to their own miserable condition, lacking in the fruit of the Spirit. Friends, this is why Jesus had to define their revolting condition. He assessed the commitments were indecisive, not measuring up to the Christ-filled life. He said in 3.17, They didn't even realize they were wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, spiritually speaking. As we're starting to see, the 21st century church exhibits many of these same behaviors, doesn't it? Not just mimicking Laodicea, but behaviors and activities of the other six churches. This is why we must realize the entire letter of Revelation was read to each of the seven churches. They all heard Jesus' assessment of the other six, along with their own assessment. My take here is they all needed to hear the sins and misdeeds of the other six, lest they succumb to the same temptations. Hearing all seven letters becomes a spiritual corrective, as if they were all getting a dose of preventive medicine. Well, friends, this entire backstory is foundational for properly understanding and interpreting one verse, our verse under scrutiny, Revelation 3.20. And I suppose the painting, which circulated around for umpteen years, is still fresh in our minds. You know the one, right? Jesus knocking on the door of a church or house that has no door handle on the outside? The famous painter Holman Hunt actually produced three paintings. The most famous version and largest one, finished in 1904, hangs in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Hunt's 1904 version is the one used as a vivid evangelistic picture of how Jesus comes knocking on the door 
of an unbeliever's heart, waiting for them to open the door and let him in. This is the perspective some preachers and pastors have, especially those gifted in evangelism. It's their go-to verse when concluding a gospel presentation. In fact, the founder of the Alpha Course and rector of Holy Trinity Brompton Church in London, the respected Nicky Gumbel, in his book Questions of Life, interprets both that classic painting and Revelation 3.20 this way. He says, Jesus is the light of the world, stands at a door, which is overgrown with ivy and weeds. The door clearly represents the door of someone's life. This person has never invited Jesus to come into his or her life. Jesus is standing at the door and knocking. He's awaiting a response. He wants to come in and be part of that person's life. Painter Holman Hunt himself wrote that the door with no handle on the outside was deliberate. The handle's only on the inside and can only be opened from that end, representing the obstinately shut mind. Nicky Gumbel agrees, saying, In other words, we have to open the door and let Jesus into our lives. Jesus will never force his way in. He gives us the freedom to choose. It is up to us whether or not we open the door to him. If we do, he promises, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. Eating together is a sign of the friendship which Jesus offers to all those who open the door of their lives to him. Friends, while this point of view can be a useful portrait of what happens when an unbeliever hears the gospel, I respectfully disagree with Gumbel and others who hold this perspective and use of Revelation 3.20. Here's another perfect example of the importance of being Bereans. As I've said more than once in these sessions, Paul commended the Bereans in Acts 17 because they searched the scriptures to see if Paul's message was actually true. And let me briefly highlight what it means to search the scriptures in the first century world, one with no photocopiers, no public copies of the scriptures, no phones, tablets, or computers. If an average Jewish person wished to search the scriptures, the only options they'd have would be, and not necessarily in this order, one, if they were studious with a good memory, they could rely on their memory if they had been memorizing scripture from the synagogue lessons or from their families. Two, they could consult the rabbi or teacher of the law in their local synagogue and see if the rabbi could answer their question. Rabbis did know and memorize a lot of their Hebrew scriptures, but even here, chapter and verse divisions didn't exist. So even the rabbi would have to search through the scrolls, find the book that has the relevant answer, and locate the texts to verify what Jesus' apostles were saying. And three, if they were converted at Pentecost, they'd have the rare privilege of sitting at the apostles' feet to be instructed. And if they were part of this new covenant community, they could also learn from those the apostles laid hands on for the purpose of dispensing the new meaning of the scriptures. As 2 Timothy 2.2 says, Paul instructing Timothy, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful people who will be able to teach others also. So, friends, that little one-liner in Acts 17 commending the Bereans for searching the scriptures says a lot more than we customarily think. We now have computer programs, the Internet, Bible Hub, concordances, search capabilities. We can just talk into our phone and ask for scriptures on any topic, scriptures that have a certain word or phrase. How easy is that? 
Friends, can we say we have today the same commitment to searching the scriptures that our first century brothers and sisters had? I wonder. Well, let's make this modest effort to get at the crux of what Revelation 3.20 is really telling us and why. The immediate context alone, being chapter 3, 14 through 22, should immediately tip us off that the Laodicean church is John's audience and subject. In other words, believers. At the broader context, being the other six letters in chapter 2 and 3, should immediately alert us to the pattern John is setting up, that being writing to six other sets of believers. And where the Laodiceans are concerned, the repentance mentioned in 3.19, the verse before our text under scrutiny, clearly indicates Jesus is speaking to his followers, those he loves, rebukes, and disciplines, not the unconverted. This is in agreement with what is said in Hebrews 12.4-10. Have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor faint when he you are punished by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he punishes every son whom he accepts. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? He, God the Father, disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. So, friends, let's examine whom Jesus is pleading with. He's not pleading with a random individual for their salvation. Rather, he's seeking admittance into a church body and their collective hearts. It's alarming to think that Jesus might be standing outside my church, your church, any local church. But friends, this is the picture painted by John in Revelation 3.20. Sadly, this Laodicean church had shut the door on the head of the church. Prosperity made them smug. They left Jesus their head standing out in the cold. To their hearts, in this church, Jesus became an outsider. Isn't it interesting, friends, that along with the spiritually dead congregation at Sardis, Laodicea also didn't merit any words of approval from Jesus. Their sins were self-reliance, self-righteousness, and spiritual indifference. What is worse, Jesus tells them they don't even realize their wretched condition because all their material needs were being met. The Laodiceans no longer recognized their need to seek God. Self-assured and comfortable, they were not bearing any spiritual fruit for the kingdom of God. Thus, Jesus is scathing criticism and assessment. In essence, Jesus called this church to turn in their false righteousness and exchange it for a genuine commitment to true righteousness. This required being zealous and repentant, as verse 19 says. Because these Christ followers thought they were rich and in need of nothing, Jesus' exact words to them were that they were wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked, as verse 17 says. Now, friends, we as 21st century Christ followers face the same dangers, don't we? Can't we allow our passion for Jesus to fade or wane and then become indifferent to sin or even to the needs of others? Can't we crowd or push Jesus out and serve self instead of him? Can't our Christian lives be overrun with ivy and weeds that grow and choke us, just like the parable of the sower in Luke 8? 
How many of us hear the word of God, then go on our own way and get choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and stalemate our walk with God, and don't mature to where Jesus wants us to be? Friends, we do both the scriptures and Jesus a disservice when we portray him as standing outside the door, begging to come in. We could see Hunt's painting as picturing Jesus constantly knocking on the door of the unbeliever's heart, hoping they will open the door and let him in. But as good detectives of the divine, with our detective's cap on, our pocket magnifying glass in hand, we discover that these seven messages to the seven churches do not paint a picture of the meek and mild Jesus. Our investigation forces us to conclude Jesus stands in glory and power as king seated on and ruling from his throne. In 3.14, Jesus' words to the Laodiceans are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. In 2.1, the letter to Ephesus, Jesus' words are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. In 2.8, the letter to Smyrna, Jesus' words are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. In 2.12, the letter to Pergamum, Jesus' words are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. In 2.18, the letter to Thyatira, Jesus' words are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. In 3.1, the letter to Sardis, Jesus' words are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. In 3.7, the letter to Philadelphia, Jesus' words are the words of him who is holy, true, and who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, and who shuts and no one opens. You get the picture, don't you, friends? This isn't gentle Jesus, meek and mild, standing unassumingly outside the entrance door. This is a portrait of Jesus in awe and majesty. Jesus appropriately calls the Laodiceans poor in spirit because they thought they were upper class in spirit. Jesus' assessment of the Laodiceans also tells them they're not as rich as they think they are. In fact, their material riches make them not rich toward God. Remember Jesus' parable of the rich landowner when God said, You fool, this night your soul is required of you? Jesus summed it up with, Such is the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So, scrutinizing the proper context of Jesus' statement in 3.20 drives us to conclude Jesus was standing outside the door of the Laodicean church. His call was to re-enter this lukewarm body of believers through their repentance. Well, friends, we mustn't steal from this verse the lesson John had for this first century church in Laodicea because it's the same vital lesson we need to hear in our 21st century churches. And that lesson includes, one, we too can become lukewarm toward Jesus, our Savior, King and Lord. We too can put Jesus, who is inside the door of our lives, back outside, can't we? Two, true repentance means acknowledging that we too are spiritually wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked without Jesus' righteousness in us. Isaiah called our own righteousness filthy rags. Three, we too can easily allow our everyday lives to overwhelm us and push Jesus out. 
We're so easily distracted by the common cares and worries of this world. Let's constantly remind ourselves that only one thing is needed. Remember the Martha and Mary story? And four, let's ask Jesus to not let our hearts grow cold, but by his Holy Spirit continue igniting the fire within us as we keep our hearts open to him. Friends, perhaps I'll help us if we ask a couple of questions like, Am I in regular, consistent fellowship with Jesus? And am I being convicted in ways I need to grow in him so that I may bear more fruit for the kingdom of God? If we're honest and say, no, I'm not, then Jesus is still knocking at the door of your heart because he desires the fullest possible relationship with you. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, I can see we're nearing the end of today's program, which will close with an email where you may write me. One listener wrote in regarding Session 20, Set Free From What? with this. Thanks for sharing. A great message as always. Yes, we need to free ourselves from man-made rules and regulations which only serve to distance ourselves from our brothers and sisters. Well, thanks for your insightful feedback. And remember, friends, the podcasts of all these sessions are posted at faithtalk1360.com. That's Talk. 1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. And please keep in mind, friends, that A Word from the Word is a listener-supported program. And we have not been immune from the challenging financial and economic times we're living in right now. So please consider financially helping to keep A Word from the Word on the air with your kind support. Just email me for the details. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.